Well, you'd think with the amount of babies born in this church that it would get old after a while, but it doesn't. It's always exciting. It's always exciting. And I should tell you that, I mean, it's always these young couples that were fawning all over with these. But anyway, Barb and I have an announcement to make. Uh, <laughs> I got your attention now, don't I? Anyway, I'll hear about that one at lunch. <laughs> uh, I better move right along. All right, well, this morning, uh, what a great morning. It's great to be in the presence of God and love to be just sensing His Spirit with us. And uh, I'll tell you, you know, there was a time when, uh, when the things of the Spirit, for me, were very uncomfortable and were actually, um, wasn't just uncomfortable, I opposed them. And I mean, I, I think back to those times, I just remember how limiting that was for me and how much really, truthfully, inside, I wanted to embrace and grasp everything that was in front of me. And I'm so glad that I have done that. And I'm still challenged daily uh, by God's Spirit in my life. And it's just amazing to see what God does in a meeting. I just am so happy to be part of a family where God's Spirit is free to move. And uh, He moves in worship. He moves even during the announcements. I mean, it's, it's just amazing what God is doing. And uh, so let's just be, continue to be thankful for what He's doing in our church. This morning we're going to unpack, and I'm going to do it rather quickly, uh, so I'm going to try to work through this material uh, in as short an order as I can, and just to make sure that I've got it right, um, my time. We're going to start this morning, and Thursday and Friday this week we're going to celebrate what the Catholics call Holy Thursday, or Maundy Thursday, and Good Friday, and of course coming down to next weekend, the celebration of Easter. It's early this year. And so this weekend uh, is a very important uh, celebration on the calendar of the Christian church across the world. We're going to start this morning, Matthew chapter 26, in a few verses. And we're going to start right away. We're going to go in. And here it says in 26.17, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at at table with the twelve. And on into verse 26. Now as they were eating... Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Sorry, I didn't advance the slide, but you've got the picture. 
So the Passover, celebration of the Passover. And in A.D. 66, the historian Josephus writes that in Jerusalem, 255,600 lambs were slaughtered on the celebration of the Passover in, in the year 66. And so he's a pretty reliable historian, although many other historians would say that he exaggerated this number. I still think you get the picture that a lot of lambs died that day, right? At a cost of about 10 dinars each, and 10 dinars or 10 denarii, one denarii was a day's labor, and so 10 would be equivalent to 10 days' labor per lamb. So if you want to put it, it's hard to put that into today's currency, but roughly about $20 is one denarii. So you're looking at about 200 bucks a lamb. Remember Joe, uh, so... Um, well, last week preached on, or I think it was Joe, talked about the money changers. And so there was a lot of cash to be made here in Jerusalem at the temple. And so 255,000 lambs times 10 dinars each, that's a lot of money. And you can see where there was a lot of, you know, like Jesus got a, took exception with, with the greed that was going on and so on. And of course, if you think about 255,600 lambs, and 10 dinars a pop, you're looking at about uh, 2.5 million people in Jerusalem at that time celebrating the Passover, and that's not even including those who could not buy a lamb, those who were deemed unclean. So the Gentiles, who weren't even part of this, were also there. And they were present in Jerusalem. That's a lot of sacrifice going on. That's a lot of sacrifice. The question that I had when I think about the Passover is really, what does a lamb's death have to do with anything? What does the, the death of a lamb have to do with all of this? Because, I mean, that's, that's a lot of blood too, right? And to the modern individualistic minds that we have, the blood sacrifice business that we're, we're seeing is, at best, it's confounding, and at worst, it's offensive. And, you know, we sing these songs, and this morning we had a song or two that talked about the blood. And we sing another one, Nothing But the Blood. And, you know, to the uninitiated, that might say, well, what are you talking about, the blood? And it's pretty gruesome stuff, it sounds like. And with our modern way of looking at things, and if we're trying to interpret Scripture through the culture, through our current culture, it doesn't make much sense. But what we have to do is we have to look at Scripture in the context of Scripture. And in the context historically, we have to think about what, what was being written at the time, how was it relevant to their time. And the fact is, is that all of Scripture is the story of the Lamb. All of Scripture is the story of the Lamb. All of Scripture talks about um, there needing to be a blood sacrifice. The blood needs to be spilt. And actually, all of this begins in the garden, which is really the story in the garden of how the offense towards God, exemplified in an initial rebellion by that first human, resulted in a debt being owed to God. And so God warned Adam in the garden that death would be the penalty for man's disobedience. That penalty... Was that was death, and so man was banished from the garden. 
And Joe spoke about it last week, that there was a destroyer angel which prevented access to God. He wielded a sword in every direction. And so we had sin and separation that occurred. We had offense and debt that was brought into play. And this angel with the sword would stop anybody from coming into the presence of God because God is holy and anything that's tainted by anything like sin cannot come into God's presence. And so man is set apart. Man is set aside and can't come into the presence of God. But that's not the end of the story. Because that sets into motion God putting together a plan for redemption, for the redemption of mankind. And what we see in Scripture, what we see uh, starting even with the story of the garden and moving forward, is we see God coming into this, giving this promise that there was going to be a new way of doing things. There would be a substitutionary way that he would deal with man. And so if we go forward a little bit in Scripture, we come to the story of Abraham and Isaac. And Abraham, living in a culture and living in a time when family was, was everything. We don't live in that kind of a time anymore. Now, of course, for many of us, family is very, very important. I would say it's very important to me. It's very important to you. But that's not the central value of our culture. It's how can I get what I want to get out of life? It's about me. So we have a very me-centric way of living today. But back then, family was everything. Everything was bound in the family. And because of that, the firstborn son was really all important. The firstborn son would determine the future for the family. And Abraham, with his son Isaac, were out one day in the desert. And God says to Abraham, I want you to take your son... I want you to go up in a hill, and I want you to sacrifice him. Now, that sounds totally horrible. But you see, it is horrible, but God, understanding the sovereignty that he holds over us, bowed to that, understanding that there is a debt to be owed by the firstborn, and that's inherited from Adam. He was the firstborn. The firstborn, the debt Adam knew, or Abraham knew, that at any time, God could call in the debt. That God could call in the debt. He knew that at any time, it would be possible that God could say, you know what? I'm calling in all the chips. As painful as that was, and as many promises that Abraham had, God could call it in. And so, he went up, he built an altar, and when Isaac asked, what are you doing Abraham said, God will provide a lamb. God will provide a sacrifice. He trusted God. And even with the thought of losing his son, Abraham still had this implicit, tacit trust that God would come through. And even as he raised the knife over Isaac, he was somehow trusting in God. But he knew that the debt had been called. He knew that the blood had to be spilt. And as he was about to bring the knife down on Isaac, 
God said, Abraham. And he stopped. And over in the thicket, there was a ram. And God provided a substitute. It's the first indication, it's the first clear indication that there's going to be a substitute that would come into play that would basically take care of the debt. The debt of sin. The sin that was owed by the firstborn. Amazing, amazing story. God providing a lamb. See, somebody has to pay when there's a fence. Regardless of where you stand, whether you're a believer or not this morning, we would recognize that when we're very, very uh, severely offended or hurt, we assume that the offender owes us. Because some people say, well, why, why do we owe God anything? Well, there was a severe offense brought against God by Adam. And there's a debt that's owed. And when we offend somebody else or when someone offends us, don't you have, ever have the feeling that they owe you? Have you ever been hurt severely? There's something in you that says they owe me. There's something in you that says they've got to pay me back. And so we either will exact, try to exact payment for that or we'll try to forgive them. Someone has to pay. Either the person that offended will pay or I will pay because you know how difficult it is to forgive. Means To forgive means that you're not going to hold that wrong on their account anymore. That you're going to uphold their character even though that might be questionable? How difficult is that? And so someone has to pay. It's either you or the person who offended you. So how much more on a universal level is this true of God? Blood, someone's blood, had to be shed for the fulfillment of the debt. Let's fast forward a little bit to the story of Moses and the story of the Israelites in captivity. The Israelites are captive in Egypt. And it's at this point in Israel history that things look pretty bad. They've been in captivity for many years. Pharaoh, who is the ruler over the Egyptians and the ruler over the Israelites, won't let the people go. And so you may know the story. It's in Exodus 12. We don't have time this morning to go through it. But God sent many plagues to Egypt to loosen Pharaoh's grip on Israel. And after none worked, God sent the final stroke, the final plague. It was the sort of justice where the firstborn of every family would be slain. And so God lays out the plan to Moses. He says, this is what's going to happen. As with all the other plagues, Even the Jews were subject to it. Just because they were Jews didn't mean that they were going to be exempt from this sort of justice that was going to sweep through the land. That this destroyer angel would come through. And while I was preparing this, I was just thinking about the destroyer angel that guards the Eden. Guards Eden, guards perfection. It's the same type of thing where this destroyer is going to be let loose over all the firstborn of the land. 
Every home would be visited by justice and by wrath. And what was the only way out? Well, God explained to Moses, the only way out was for you to have faith in the provision that I'm going to give you. He promised deliverance from death through a substitute once again. So they were given clear instructions. A lamb needed to be sacrificed at dusk. In the evening, the lamb would be killed. Its blood needed to be spread across the door frames of the homes of all the Israelites. As a sign of their faith in God, that's what they would do. That lamb would then be eaten by the family in the shelter of the house. And that night, when the destroyer angel went through the land, the destroyer angel would see the blood on the doorposts of the children of Israel and would pass over their house. And they would be exempt from the curse of death. They would be exempt from the curse of death. So the result of that that angel sweeping through the land would be one of two things. It's either going to be a dead child or a dead lamb. And if you think about it, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's a bunch uh, there, there, there's a huge number of dead infants. I mean, can you imagine what it'd be like? It says that death visited every home. So the firstborn would have, in many cases, been adults. Firstborn would have been people who were probably old age. They would have been the firstborn. Can you just imagine what that would have been like? And God was totally justified in doing it. See, there is a debt that must be paid. Justice either fell on the family or you were sheltered under the substitute, the blood of the lamb. Nothing could help you. Nothing could help the Jews either. Not their rituals, not their good works, nothing. Not their prayers, nothing. If they stepped outside the house, they would be stricken with death. And I started to think about it. You know, they're just like the Egyptians, really. And I thought, in reading this again, for I've read it many times, the thought that struck me was, I wonder, I just wonder, if there were any Egyptians that spread the blood on their doorposts. I wonder. If they did, they were covered. See, because God's intention right from the start was that all would be saved. Many times it talks about the Gentiles, and and through the course of the history of Israel, there were those who tagged along, so to speak. You've got to wonder if at that time some did escape the wrath that came upon the land. See, they were saved on the basis of faith in the substitutionary sacrifice of that lamb. It was the only thing saving them. Is that, you know, like as Tim Keller says, fluffy and muffy save the day. Like, it doesn't make sense. But that's the way God has set it up. So as the story goes, they're saved on the basis of their faith in what God was saying. And as things progress, God delivers them out, of freedom, uh, out into freedom, into the promised land, and the exodus takes place. So the debt was paid that night, the Jews were set free, And it was of such significance that they were always to remember this occasion and celebrate it year after year as a reminder of God's deliverance. 
But there was still the problem of sin and the final solution for sin, that separation from God. Exodus, the exodus that they experienced was a temporary solution, which did point to a more permanent fix for sin. So I'm just going to flip forward. Sometimes I find the PowerPoint kind of limiting. But there was a permanent solution. As detailed in Exodus, the Jews had a very prescribed and scripted way to celebrate the Passover. Families would share a meal called the Seder. And once in my life, I participated in a Seder meal on the Passover. And it was, it's all scripted. And we find Jesus in our passage today administering the Seder meal. So that's what he was doing with his disciples. Go prepare the Passover. They were, they were having this scripted, ritualistic meal which commemorated the exodus and the deliverance from Egypt. Traditionally, throughout the meal, the presider, person that the authority figure in the home, perhaps the father, would stand up and explain the feast's four main points, each while offering up and drinking from a cup of wine. So there were four cups of wine that would be drunk through the meal, and the father would explain each of these four things. I thought, geez, four cups of wine. But then I read as well that they watered the wine down. You know. It's probably a good thing. But the four points, what were the four points that they commemorated? Number one was the rescue from Egypt. Number two, the freedom from slavery. Thirdly, redemption by God's power. And lastly, a renewal of relationship with God. So during the third cup, normally the presider would bless the elements of the bread, the herbs, and the lamb. So these elements would be on the table, and that during the drinking of the third cup, well into the meal, he would stand up and he would bless the bread, the herbs, and the lamb. Explaining their meaning in relation to the Israelites' captivity and deliverance. For example, the bread would be lifted up and he would say, this is the, bl- the bread of our affliction, which our fathers ate in the wilderness. And so it's symbolic of the pain and the anguish that they went through. And so he would stand up and say this. But the thing is, Jesus departed from the script at this point of the meal. Imagine the shock at the table when Jesus at this point shows them the bread. And he says, it says here in verse 26, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, it broke and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. He departed from the script big time. In effect, he's saying, this is the bread of my affliction, the bread of my suffering, for I'm going to lead you, deliver you out of bondage into a new life. He had everybody's attention at that moment. He had every, everything was going according to plan. Everything was going according to script up to that point, you see, because these guys would have celebrated the Seder meal every year of their life. They knew it off by heart. They knew exactly what was coming next. And when Jesus stood up and says, take, eat, this is my body. Take the bread. This is like, holy smokes, this is big time. The thought that would have gone through the mind was, some of them, I'm sure, would have been, this is heresy. And then they would have said, wait a minute, it's Jesus. They still would have had to reel themselves back in. Jesus then 
seals this promise as a new covenant by guaranteeing it with a blood promise. In those days, this would have been understood as a binding agreement. So he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying in verse 27, 28, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And all of a sudden he takes this cup, and, and like they're flabbergasted. So he departs from the script one more time. He's saying, as a result of his substitutionary sacrifice, he is saying, I'm the substitute. There'll be a new permanent relationship between God and man. Then, Jesus shows his unconditional commitment to to all of us, but to them, by announcing that he won't eat or drink until he meets us in the kingdom of God. And so there's this futuristic promise. There's this Futuristic promises, again, I tell you not to drink it. I won't drink the fruit of the vine until I drink it anew with you in the Father's kingdom. He says, I'm only going to party then. So he's making this long-term commitment, this eternal commitment to us to cover our sin and to heal the relationship between us and the Father. It's an amazing, amazing truth. See, Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. He departed from the script again. There was bread, there was wine, but there was a crucial element missing on the table. There was no lamb. How could the Passover Seder be celebrated without a lamb? The fact is, the lamb was present at the table, presiding over the meal. Jesus was that person. He was that sacrificial lamb. He's to be the substitute. He's the one that all of history points to and turns on. We sung about it this morning. Jesus, cornerstone. All of history hinges on this event. That's why John the Baptist says in John chapter 1, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We've said it many times before. Jesus on the cross, you know, He gets what we deserve. He took it upon Himself, our shame, our guilt, sin, all of it. He became sin and took the sword of the destroyer for us so that we could be passed over forever. Isn't that an amazing truth? As we go into this weekend, isn't that an amazing truth to know that Jesus' blood is over our doorposts? That Jesus' blood is the once-for-all sacrifice? That we don't have to do this on a yearly basis? But it does not even more than that. It brings us into right relationship with God. Like That is an incredible truth. For our sake, it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, He made him to be sin. God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, in in him, we might become the righteousness of God. That we become righteous. We become righteous. We remember, you know, we have communion. And what we're doing when we have communion is we remember and celebrate Jesus' broken body on the cross. We remember and celebrate his shed blood on the cross, which is our Passover I was thinking about that this morning as we were worshiping after having studied this all week. And I was just, for the last two weeks, just thinking about the Passover and what it means and everything. I was just worshiping God and I just felt like I was so covered by Him. In remembering and believing, there's also the necessity of doing as Jesus asked. Because it goes one step further. He says, take and eat. Not in the literal sense, but 
in all that we are spiritually, intellectually, and emotionally, He bids you and I to come to the table and partake in relationship with Him. It's not just about following ritual. It's about having relationship with Jesus. He says, come and, come and sit down with me. Eat with me. Come and partake of who I am. That's what we were doing this morning. You know, Joe said the table is set. Absolutely. After the, we had beautiful time where people were being ministered to, he's like, Jesus, he's like, he's really asking us to come and sit down with him. Remember that the Passover is celebrated together. It's not just about us as individuals. The temptation sometimes is just me and Jesus. I was reading a Facebook post by somebody two weeks ago. They said, oh, I'm just, I'm just on my own and it, I'm having church with myself today. That, you're limiting yourself. It's impossible to be the church by yourself because the church is all of us. And Jesus calls us together. The Passover meal was eaten as a family. And God is calling us as a family to take and eat of Him, to be with Him, to understand that everything that we celebrate in the Passover all those thousands of years ago applies and is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It points to the permanent future we have together with Him. So what's your response to Jesus' invitation to sit at His table? What's your response to that? If you were to ask a Jew what's going on, they'd tell you this. They would say, I was a slave under the sentence of death, but I took shelter under the blood of the Lamb and escaped that bondage, and now God lives in our midst and we're following Him to the promised land. That's what a Jew would say. That's what the Jew would say about the Exodus. But the good news is today, folks, that that's our statement too. In fact, it's fulfilled and made perfect. That's our story. It all points to Jesus. Everything. Right from day one in the Bible, right through, all points to Jesus. His perfect substitutionary sacrifice who delivers us out of bondage of sin and leads us in life towards the promised kingdom life eternally. That is something we can celebrate. We celebrate that together. We can celebrate it every day, 24-7. It's an amazing, amazing thing. Folks, it is so wonderful to be covered by his blood. And again, we have to not think about it in terms of our own cultural context. We have to think about how the scriptures speak in the way that they were written, in the time they were written. It makes sense. It makes sense. There's an offense towards God. And God is justified in demanding the firstborn. But he provides a way. And that way is his son Jesus. He provides a Passover lamb. And we're covered by his blood. And we have an eternal relationship with him that goes beyond anything possible prior to that. Let's stand together this morning. And let's just thank God for what he's done. Lord Jesus, we just lift up our hands to you this morning. And Father, we are so appreciative of the fact that we're covered by the blood of Jesus. That we see Jesus as our substitute. That he delivered us from bondage of sin. He delivered us from 
things that we could not ever dream of being free from, Jesus has taken it all upon himself. And we get what we don't deserve, God. We get your grace. We get your mercy. We're covered by your blood. Thank you so much. Let's just thank Jesus this morning. Let's thank him for how he covers us. Let's thank him for how he brings us into new life, into relationship. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that we're going to be with you eternally. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that we're going to eat at that great wedding supper of the Lamb. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that that is coming. But Lord, as it's a now and not yet, Father, we, we want to live for you each day. We want to know well, your truth. We want to express your truth. God, would you help us? Give us courage, oh God. As we go forward, as we walk these days on this earth, God, would you help us? Fill us with your spirit this morning, Lord. We thank you for what you're doing in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.